Let's open up our Bibles together to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We are taking a short summer-long break uh, from the book of Romans, where we've been uh, about 53 Sundays uh, in the book of Romans, and we're in in chapter 8, so a couple more years we'll have this thing knocked out. The second half is going to go faster than the first half, actually, so... But we're taking a a, a break this summer for eight weeks on what we're calling gospel reset, refocusing ourselves on what really matters, who who it is that we're called to be as a church. What what are those things we're called to root our identity in together? How is it that this church can be the most faithful, best honor the Lord together? And so that's that's what we've been talking about now for the previous three weeks seeking to root our identity as a local church, as a, as a body of believers in the right things. And so we began by speaking of the glory of God as that overarching goal of, of all of history, really, of all of God's purposes, and that, that we need to be about God's glory and bringing glory to Him. We spoke then of the gospel and how the gospel needs to, to be the very center of all that we do, all that we say. Last week, we began to consider corporate worship together, which we'll be doing for three Sundays. Last week, we talked about our singing. This morning, we're talking about preaching. Next week, we'll be talking about the Lord's Supper. So let's consider this topic together from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, this pure and perfect good gift that you have given to us. Thank you that in your word, by the working of your spirit, we come to know you, our God. We are transformed, brought from death to life, from darkness to light, from unbelief to faith. Thank you, Lord, that for your people, we are transformed more and more into the likeness of our God, of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the working of of your spirit through your word. And so we pray, Lord, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes in and among us this morning. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, much has changed since Paul wrote these words to the Corinthian church. There has been 2,000 years of development in science and technology Part of that development has been a development in thought as well, namely the development in thought that has occurred over this time is that everything that is new is automatically better than everything that's old. This kind of thinking says that much of what's old is obsolete. Much of what's old is of no purpose to us today. It's no longer valid, and that's certainly true when it comes to certain things like modes of communication. Um, just consider with me, when's the last time you sent a telegraph? Did you send any this week? Somebody, there's probably somebody that's like, I did. I saw a face from Brad over there. You didn't. Okay, good. 
Things like means of transportation. I mean, who would go around by horse and buggy anymore? That's a bad example. Never mind that one. What about medical discoveries, scientific discoveries, these blessings? It would be crazy for us to go back to that. But there's a side to this kind of thinking that is absolutely just rooted in arrogance, what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. We think everything that we have right now is automatically better than everything that came before it and every way of doing things simply by the virtue of it's us doing it now and it was them doing it a long time ago. We're just sure if something's old, it must be outdated. We're sure we're smarter. We're sure we do things better than all the generations that came before us. And so it can be very difficult for modern people and the modern mind to grasp that something that was written 2,000 years ago could be just as true, just as essential right now as it was for those who originally received it. And not only that, but what God has revealed to us in Scripture is the highest truth. It is, it is perfect truth. It's the most perfect insight, the most perfect instruction. No modern thought, no modern reason, no modern development could improve on it in any way. And so many things have changed, but the truths presented in the Word of God are timeless, and they never change. And all the ways that man rejects this is foolishness. It is evidence of our arrogance. It is evidence of our folly. We only reveal our foolishness and pride when we think that way about Scripture. And perhaps the most important truth that's being rejected today is the centrality, the essential nature, the absolute necessity of the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many in our day believe that preaching is foolishness, that it's outdated, that it's old-fashioned, that it's, that it's an antiquated thing. And, and even within the church, now that's everybody outside the church, but even within the church, this thought permeates the way we approach preaching because we think we need to spice it up. It's not just what does the Word of God say to us? What does it tell us to do? How does it tell us to view God and, and how we ought to live in light of that? No, we've got to spice it up. We've got to make it relevant. But it turns out that's how people thought in Paul's day too. That's not new to us. This is how people thought. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, which we didn't read this morning. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So it's not just that Christ had sent Paul to preach, but also there is a particular way that the gospel is to be preached. There's a way of preaching, Paul says, that is powerless. There's a way of preaching that dishonors God, and Paul says it empties the cross of its power. That's a big deal. A statement like that is a big deal. If there is a kind of preaching that empties the cross of his power, we ought to avoid that kind of preaching at all costs, right? So what is that preaching? What does Paul tell us? It's to depend on worldly methods. To depend on worldly methods dishonors the Lord. It robs the cross of its power. He says here, eloquent wisdom. Literally, the wisdom of speech. Paul says that kind of preaching. Now, he doesn't mean putting sentences together in a coherent way. There's a very specific thing Paul means, but when he says this kind of preaching robs the cross of its power, 
What he's describing flies in the face of the expectations of the public speaker in ancient Corinth of that day. And it flies in the face of the expectations of our own modern culture today. There's a very similar thing going on. Susan Cain, the social historian, says, a cultural shift has taken place in America from the culture of character toward a culture of personality. In the culture of character, the ideal self was serious, disciplined, and honorable. What counted was not so much the impression one made in public as for how one behaved in private. But when they embraced the culture of personality, Americans started to focus on how others perceived them. They became captivated by people who were bold and entertaining. The social role demanded of all in the new culture of personality was that of performer. Every American was to become a performing self, end quote. Well, we don't have to look real hard to see that that's true. If you're familiar at all with celebrity culture, you know there's a lot of people who are really, really rich and famous, and you can't quite put a finger on anything they've ever done to deserve that. If we look at our social media, we can see most of what is being put out there is a performance. This is the ideal version of myself and how I want other people to see me. Our culture is just like the culture of ancient Corinth. It has come to prize big personalities and charisma over character and sometimes at the expense of character. This is what we value. Again, our obsession with celebrity proves that this is true. And sadly, the modern church has been deeply influenced by the culture on this. Most of the popular methods of doing church, doing church is an expression that uh, coming up as a young person in ministry, that's how they talked about it, doing church. That tells you something right there all in itself. But most of these things stand in opposition. Most of the popular way that church is done in America stands in direct opposition to Paul's words here. Most of the emails I get from organizations trying to tell me the best way to grow our church stand in direct contrast to Paul's teaching. Much of the discussion about how to grow a church, how to win the lost, how to keep people coming back is centered around, it is focused on our need to employ worldly methods and how the methods Paul describes here don't work for us in our culture anymore. How can we be more appealing? How can we be more entertaining? How can we be more culturally relevant, more trendy? How can we, we provide what the young people are looking for? And Paul tells us that kind of thinking dishonors the Lord. It's not neutral. It's not we do it this way or we do it that way and it's all the same. Last Sunday when we talked about singing, I talked about styles of music and styles of music are just that. They're styles of music. We've all got our preferences. We like this kind of singing. We like that kind of singing. For the most part, it's neutral. One's not inherently superior to the other. Not so when it comes to this topic, not according to Paul. This is not a neutral thing. It's not a question of culture or style. Pandering to the culture attempts to rob God of his glory. As we just read, it empties the cross of its power. That is a huge deal. So see what Paul tells us here about preaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He says, I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, Paul could have done that. Paul was absolutely brilliant. As we've gone through the book of Romans, our minds kind of spin with Paul's brilliance. 
But he recognized that the message didn't actually belong to him. It was the testimony of God, he says here in verse 1. It wasn't Paul's message. It was God's message. It wasn't Paul's testimony. It was God's testimony. Preaching is the proclamation of God's word, not man's word. It's not the preacher's word. It's not his testimony. It is God's word. And so preaching isn't storytelling. Preaching isn't making a moving speech. Preaching is proclamation. Preaching is heralding. In the ancient world, a herald was a messenger. An ancient herald would come to a city to deliver the king's message, and if that herald did not deliver that message or he changed the message, that herald would die. You will deliver this exactly, word for word, or it will cost you your life. You don't dare tamper with the king's message because the message didn't belong to the herald. The message belonged to the king. This is what preachers are called to do. Preachers don't have authority because of their character. They don't have authority because of their age, because of their title, because of their education, because of their skill, because of their charisma. Preachers have authority because they are proclaiming the very words of God. So that means true preaching forces people to take sides. You're either with the king or you're against him. A preacher doesn't invite people to respond to the word of God. He summons them to respond to the word of God. There's a major difference between those things. A number of years ago, I served on a jury for two weeks in South Bend. And if I wouldn't have shown up, If I just woke up one morning and thought, you know, I think I'll go to work. I make more money by going to work than I do sitting on this boring jury. I would have been in some trouble. In fact, I could have gone to jail myself if I had not come. But I've actually been invited to a lot of parties, and sometimes I'm just not feeling it and come up with a good reason not to go. (laughs) I can't make it. Can't come to the birthday party. Sorry. And do you know what happens to me in that case? Nothing. Nothing happens. They might be sad because I'm a delight. But nothing happens. There there are no repercussions. Why? Because a birthday party is an invitation. You can go or not go. It's completely up to you. But when you are called to serve on a jury, it is a summons. You either obey or you suffer the consequences. The preacher is called to summon people to obedience to the word of God. And so Paul says, I reject lofty speech. I reject a certain kind of wisdom in my preaching. Rhetorical skill in Paul's day was the quickest way to celebrity. The quickest way to become famous and well-known was to be a skilled orator, a skilled speaker. And so the Corinthians were used to these traveling speakers, traveling orators who would come and they would entertain by publicly speaking and performing on street corners and lecture halls and social clubs. The good ones, the ones who became popular, who became famous, employed a certain pattern of speech, certain rhetorical devices, tricks of the trade that made them popular. And Paul says, I'm not one of those guys. I'm not a rhetorician. I'm a herald. He had a message to proclaim, a message that didn't originate with him. It didn't come from his creativity. 
It didn't come because he got together with a group of other pastors on a whiteboard and started mapping out how they could be the most entertaining and the most creative. That's not what Paul said. I have a message that belongs to the king, and I must deliver that message, and you must obey that king. An order would change their message based on the audience that they spoke to, but a herald was bound to the message because it wasn't their message. It didn't matter if the crowd liked the message or didn't like the message. They couldn't change the message because it wasn't theirs to tamper with. They were controlled by the message. Of course, they would be sensitive to their audience, but they could not adjust the message for anyone because the message for them was a matter of life and death. Verse 2 then, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Literally, I, he says, I determined not to know anything among you if not Jesus Christ and him crucified. So it's not that Paul never addresses any other topics. We can see in the book of Romans that he does. We can see, especially as we get to the second half of the book of Romans, he's going to do that a lot. We could see it if we read First and Second Corinthians. He addressed other topics to the Corinthians to whom he makes this statement. But the content of all true preaching is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we get it wrong, if we get the gospel wrong, or if the gospel is absent, we will be wrong on every other topic on which we speak. It is, it is the gospel, and we've seen, haven't we, we've taken so long in the book of Romans, because for these first eight chapters, Paul is meticulously unfolding the gospel for us. And it's only once he has done this that he's going to move on to practical matters of how it is that we live our lives in light of the gospel. But if we're wrong about the gospel, we're going to be wrong about everything else as well. Our understanding of every other topic flows from our understanding of the gospel. So Paul's preaching was not designed to make much of himself, although he was such a brilliant man that he could have made much of himself if he had wanted to. No, his preaching was designed to exalt Jesus Christ and his cross. That's what all true preaching does. Anything else is perverse. Anything other than coming into the pulpit in order to deliver the word of God that Christ might be glorified and men and women might submit to him is perverted. Every time a preacher opens his mouth, whatever the topic is, Jesus Christ must be glorified. The gospel must be proclaimed. This is what makes Christian preaching Christian, if you can go to a church on a Sunday morning, and I promise you there's lots of them, and hear a sermon and sit next to a Muslim or a Hindu, and after the sermon you speak to them and they say, I kind of agreed with everything I heard. Nothing offended me there. You did not hear Christian preaching. You did not hear a sermon. You heard a motivational speech from a creative person. But this message is the most urgent message for all of mankind. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified for sinners. This is the message. There, there is pardon for rebels in the cross of Christ. There is cleansing for sin, reconciliation with God. There's adoption into God's family as his beloved son and daughter. There's an inheritance of eternal life and unimaginable glory. All of it is free to you. In the cross of Christ, which includes, of course, his, his incarnation, his sinless life, his death, his resurrection. This is the heart of all true Christian preaching. This is the message we need over and over and over again. We need it repeatedly. 
We don't need five principles for better parenting. We don't need six techniques for a happy marriage or ten steps to financial freedom. We certainly don't need another sermon series based on popular movies and music. This is what we need. What our souls need. Every single one of us is Jesus Christ and his cross. That's what we need. This is what, friends, you must demand from this pulpit every Sunday. The message of the Word of God relentlessly pointing you to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead, crucified to save sinners like us. If we are not going to talk about that, let's all sleep in. Let's not waste our time. And if that's not the message that comes out of this pulpit, go find a good church. And if you're visiting with us, and it's not the message coming out of your pulpit, welcome. (laughs) Charles Spurgeon says, the motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. The sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again till you have something worth preaching. Spurgeon also says, leave Christ out, oh, my brethren. Better leave the pulpit out altogether. If a man can preach one sermon without mentioning Christ's name in it, it ought to be his last. Certainly the last that any Christian ought to go to hear him preach. One more from Spurgeon, because he's worth it. However grand the language, it will be merely much ado about nothing if Christ is not there. And I mean by Christ, not merely his example, and ethical precepts of his teaching, but his atoning blood, his wondrous satisfaction made for human sin and the grand doctrines of believe and live. This is what Christian preaching is. It's not paying lip service to Jesus and then just treating him like a moral example who we should try really hard to copy. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel message. And it's a means of grace to us. The preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a means of God's grace to us. It is, it is God's grace to us to gather every week, hearing the word of God proclaimed, to be reminded of the glory and the grace and the saving power of Jesus Christ who died for sinners. It, it produces worship in us. It produces thankfulness in us. It, it produces awe and reverence for God. It produces humility and boldness and perseverance. Really, all the fruit of the Spirit are, are produced in us. As the Word of God is proclaimed and the Holy Spirit applies it to our lives, gospel-centered preaching is one of the the primary ways we mature in Christ. It goes on then in verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. In my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. He says, I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. Why? He's one of the smartest men that ever lived. He was not a timid man, unable to speak with force or eloquence. We can tell this both from his letters and his preaching in the book of Acts. He was able to go toe-to-toe with the greatest minds of his day, and he always had the upper hand intellectually. He was able to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of unimaginable opposition and persecution. So why was this Paul saying when he came and preached to the Corinthian Christians that he did so in weakness and fear and trembling? He uses this expression a number of times, Paul does, fear and trembling. 
It always has to do with an important, urgent issue. So what Paul's saying here is, it wasn't fear and trembling for my own safety or for my own life. It was because of his desire that they would be saved by the message that he was proclaiming. It was because of the greatness of the message that he'd been giving. That's why he was preaching with fear and trembling and weakness. He knew that he was a herald proclaiming the king's message, not some earthly king. Almighty God had given him the message to proclaim. So there was weakness and fear and trembling because of the greatness of the message he was given. And even the Apostle Paul knew he was inadequate for that task. He knew his own sin. He knew his own limitations. He knew that he couldn't change anyone's heart. It had to be the work of God. And he had to proclaim this message. It's one of the reasons if I talk to a young preacher and he says something like, he's just begun and he says, I'm I'm never nervous when I stand up there. I'm always deeply concerned about that young guy. It means he's not taking the task seriously at all or he's thinking way too highly of himself. It's a fearful thing to proclaim the word of God, to be a herald of the king's message. So Paul says, I didn't come with plausible words of wisdom. In other words, I'm I'm not relying on my persuasive words. I'm not relying on gimmicks of any kind. Instead, he says, his speech and his message were in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul defines the nature of his preaching and of all true preaching by contrasting these two ideas. On the one hand, plausible words of wisdom, and second, the demonstration of spirit and of power. The truth is, lives are not changed by a motivational speech. It doesn't matter how good it is. It doesn't matter how skilled the speaker is or how smart or creative or original the speaker is. Human powers, no matter how impressive or how brilliant, can never cause sinful, rebellious, dead human hearts to turn to Christ and live. We don't have the power to do that. The the only thing that can do it is that as the Word of God is opened and read and the message and the meaning are proclaimed, as the, the good news of Jesus Christ crucified is applied to the hearts and the minds of the hearer, that God takes then by His Holy Spirit the preached Word and wields it with power as an instrument of irresistible force, arresting the mind, convicting the heart, conforming the will, totally transforming the hearer forever, bringing them from death to life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Well, the power is not in the preacher. The power is in the one preached. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is what we have in Scripture. The Lord Jesus Christ is called the power of God and only one other thing. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. His sinless life. His death as our substitute. Bearing the wrath of God for our sin. His resurrection in glory and power. It is the power of God for salvation. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. After saying in verse 17 that he doesn't preach with eloquent wisdom lest the cross be emptied of his power, Paul says in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is filled with supernatural power from the Holy Spirit. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God. It's one of the reasons we keep the kids in here during the service. This is exactly what Paul's saying here. It's one of the reasons we do that. There are other reasons, of course. When people come to the church and they're new here and they say, why do you keep the kids? When are you going to have a kids program and send the kids out? And the answer is, I don't know, when they get a new pastor. There's, there's all kinds of reasons for it. We believe families should worship together. It's good for kids to see their parents worship. It's good for kids to know that the church is for them right now and not just some future boring thing they'll get into one day. It's even just that we love kids and don't want to segregate them from ourselves. By the way, it's worth saying at this point, if kid noise bothers you during the service, consider what I'm saying right now about the kids. And if you've nodded your head at all, then you shouldn't be grumpy about kids making a little noise in the service. In fact, what you could do that would be a huge blessing is just begin, instead of thinking about being irritated, begin to think, how could I serve this young family? How could I be of help and a blessing to them? That was free. That's not in my notes, but I just want you to, to know my heart. But, but there's all kinds of good reasons to have the kids, but perhaps the most important reason in my mind is this. We believe that what happens in this room is supernatural. We believe what's happening right now is supernatural in nature. It's a means of God's grace to us and to the kids. God is at work when his word is proclaimed. Even if at times it's a bit beyond their understanding, God is at work supernaturally by his spirit. We believe that in the preaching of the word. It's true for them. It's true for us. It's not based on our goosebumps. That happens with or without goosebumps. It's not based on us having some aha moment where we can't wait to like share the tidbit on social media that, uh, that the pastor has said. It's not dependent on any of those things. God is at work by his spirit supernaturally when his word is proclaimed. It is true. So Paul insists on this method of preaching, so that what? He says in verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Again, Paul contrasts the wisdom of men against the power of God. Paul doesn't want people to be impressed with him. He doesn't want people to follow him. He has no interest in extending his personal influence or gathering a following around himself. He doesn't need people hanging on his every word. He wants their faith to rest somewhere else. He says, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's why it's so important in a, in a church like ours to resist the common temptation. A common temptation in, in all churches, but certainly in a church like ours, is to look at our pastors or our elders to deliver for us that which only Jesus can provide. The Apostle Paul says, I don't want you following me. I don't want your faith 
resting on me. I want your faith resting on the power of God, resting on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, on the mighty working in your heart of the Holy Spirit, but I don't want your faith resting in me. If we're not looking to Jesus as the ultimate source of our identity, the ultimate source of our worth or our satisfaction or our security, we are putting an impossible burden on whatever it is that we are looking to, a burden they could never carry. It's a burden I could never carry. It's a burden your elders could never carry. It's a burden your spouse could never carry. Probably one of the number one things I say when I sit down with a couple who's having trouble in their marriage, and one of them is just sick to death of the other one because of the way they've let them down, probably the number one thing that needs to be heard by that person in the moment is stop looking to this person to do for you what only Jesus can do. Husbands, you can't find your worth from your wife. Your satisfaction from your wife. Wife, you can't find that from your husbands. You know that? He's kind of a goon. He can't do it. No one but Jesus can do it. But we're constantly looking to other people. And so we're so let down. We can't help but be let down. But there's something worse than being let down. There's something worse than putting a burden on another person that they could never live up to. And so they're perpetually depressed because they can feel your disappointment like a thousand tons on your shoulder. There's something far worse than that. We dishonor God by rejecting Jesus' provision. We're not just looking to someone else. We're rejecting God who's given to us all that we need. So the question is, is your faith resting in him? Is your faith resting in him? Is your hope found only in the power of the triune God, only in the cross of Christ? Are you believing in him? Are you trusting in him? Are you coming to him for eternal life? That's what preaching points us towards. That's what true Christian preaching calls us to. And if you're not, then I call you now. I summon you now on behalf of Christ. Come. You must come. There's no need for fancy words. They don't work anyway. The gospel's call is the only call that can save. Come to Jesus. Find your rest. Find your hope in him. Find your peace in him. And Christian, look to Christ. You find your hope and rest in him too. The gospel is not just the entryway into the Christian life. It's the Christian life. It's not just the message that saves us. It's the message that sustains us and empowers us and fills us with hope and encourages us and gives to us courage. Christian, find your hope and your rest in him. Commit yourself to him by the means that he has offered to you, the, the, the ordinary means of grace that he's provided for you. These simple things, his word, prayer, corporate worship, gathering together as we pray together and we sing together, as we encourage one another, as the word is proclaimed, as we come to the table together. These are ordinary means of grace that God has given to us that are filled with power filled with supernatural power. He has given you, Christian, all that you need in his gospel and in his church. And so let us 
commit ourselves to these things. Let let us commit ourselves in, in a new way. As we are in the midst of this series, really defining clearly who we are as a church, what we must root our identity in, let us take these things seriously. And I'll just tell you one concern that I've had. It's not rooted out of anger or frustration. I was surprised four and a half years ago, closing in on five years ago when I came to Maple Grove, that y'all like to skip church just as much as the people at our other church did. The, 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 I think it's a, it's a foreign thought to us to say there's something supernatural that happens in this room when we gather together that I cannot get back if I miss it. I don't mean there's never a reason that you're not in your own home local church. But I don't think we think that way. I think we think, here'd be a fun thing to do today. And I've been in church like three weeks in a row, so I think I get this one. I just want to tell you, I'm not thinking of any specific people. I'm not upset with anyone. I don't think we take it seriously. I don't think that we approach it with reverence. Even when we're here and we come together, I don't think we have this reverent awe that God Almighty is going to meet with us. That something supernatural is going to be here. And the reason I know we don't take it serious is because we get irritated and offended over really weird and petty stuff. And if we took this seriously, if we believed God Almighty is here to meet with us, not according to our preferences, but according to His designated desires for our worship, then we would stop getting weird about little things. I want to encourage us to be those people. I say this again, not because I'm frustrated, but because I love this church and I love this people and I so want this for us. It's so much better. It's so much better. And it's there. It's there for us. That that, that we would be a people who commit ourselves to the Lord, who commit ourselves to, to the means of grace that he has provided for us, that we trust God who is faithful to do all that he has promised and that we approach him with with awe and reverence and thankfulness and eager expectation, knowing that when we gather as the church, that what the Lord has done in calling us together is a supernatural thing that we could never do on our own. What a gift, what a glory, what a blessing it is. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, you by your spirit do that which man could never do. Lord, we could never do this for ourselves. We could never, Lord, force your hand to cause your spirit to move by our creativity or our eloquent words of wisdom. We entrust ourselves to you and to your word, to your spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would work mightily among us, Lord, that you would be glorified among us, that as we gather together as your church, that we would do so in joyful worship and submission to you, that you would be glorified and that everyone from the youngest to the oldest, Lord, by your spirit would be drawn to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would be, Lord, so affected by your gospel that our lives would be transformed from one glory to the next. Pray, Lord, that you would be honored and gloried in this church, Lord, that we would be faithful to all that you've called us to, and thank you, Lord, for this church, for this people, for your love and your faithfulness to us for your promised faithfulness for all of eternity. We rejoice and rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.